we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. <clears throat> now, the book of Acts is definitely one of my most favorite books in the Bible. It's action-packed from start to beginning. And it's really exciting to see start to end. <laughs> just, just check in that you are listening. That one's for free. <clears throat> but yeah, really, really exciting stuff from start to end. There's lots of adventure. There's, there's murder. You get people who um, are preaching for, for really long and someone falls asleep and dies because it was too boring. But then, you know, by God's grace, he kind of gets raised to life. You get people who are chained up in prison, people losing their sight, amazing prayer meetings where um, find a fiery tongues come and, and it's all kind of, all, all happening, really, really uh, fast, action-packed. And I think that the, the book of Acts would probably make a really good TV show. Anyway, so we're going to start right at the beginning and we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And it's probably worth knowing that um, the book of Acts is part of a, a two-part sequel. So it's written by Luke and he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then he kind of carries on his story about Jesus and his movement in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> Get it out on your phone. Okay. Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After this, his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in, in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, I want to put you in the perspective, in the shoes of the disciples. Um, and you have to understand, the last couple of months for these guys has been a real, real whirlwind. Um, let's go back to, a, I don't know, maybe six to eight weeks. They had the triumphal entry 
into Jerusalem. Jesus is walking in on a donkey and he's saying, I'm the king of Israel. He's making his triumphal claim. And so the disciples are getting really, really excited. They're kind of uh, cheering him on and they're thinking, this is the time when Jesus is going to come and overthrow uh, the, the Roman rule. He's going to restore Israel back to its glory days. Well, as we know, he didn't overthrow the Romans. He maybe overthrew a couple of tables, but this really wasn't what um, the disciples were expecting. Soon after that, it kind of goes from a, a mixed kind of confusion level to despair. Jesus gets arrested, and then as we know, he then gets hung on a tree to die. And his disciples abandon him. And so they've just gone from woo to really, really sad and gloomy. They kind of think the end has come. Um, they go back to fishing and their, their day jobs. But then three days later, Jesus then comes back to life. And so then it's woo, it's party time again. And so they've just gone from up, down to up again. And then, so Jesus, he comes back. Uh, we read in this um, section that he comes and speaks to his disciples and he eats with them, he eats food. I love that there's food in there because I love food, but I also think food is in there uh, because Luke is making a point that Jesus in his resurrected body is, has a, a fully human body. He still has to eat and feed himself. It just wasn't there for a bit of fun. Um, so we can't get confused and think maybe it was just a spiritual re- resurrection, but it was a full body resurrection. Okay, so they must be at this point feeling really excited. You know, their king is back. Hallelujah. We're going we're gonna to take the power back now. And then lo and behold, what happens? Now he's going to leave them again. And so he gets taken up in his cloud and up to heaven. And they, I don't know what they were thinking, but I would be thinking, what on earth am I thinking? What on earth is going on? Um, and then to cap it all off, you have some two really weird dudes who kind of appear out of nowhere, two angels dressed in white. And they're saying, what are you doing staring up there? He's gone into heaven. And so you're left with... Um, these guys who, like I've said, they've just had this real roller coaster uh, period with, with Jesus, really up and down, really up and down. And something I find really interesting in this passage is uh, the question that they asked Jesus. So um, they probably had lots of questions, but one of the questions that Luke chooses to write down is, is this in verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? So again, the disciples are still in this narrative. They're still in this understanding that Jesus is going to come and bring his kingdom in. But his kingdom, bringing his kingdom in is going to mean overthrowing the Roman rule. And that they will kind of be the nation to rule all nations. And it's like they just don't really get his message. They don't really get what he's about and what his kingdom is about. And again, a a few months ago, you you had James and John kind of arguing about 
um, who would be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, you know, pick me, pick me. And that was because they thought his kingdom was coming soon, his new governmental rule, and, and they wanted to be at the seats of power. And throughout uh, that gospel, you see um, the guys kind of arguing and fighting for that place. And I can't remember, there's another gospel where uh, it says that they get their mum to ask Jesus. And you just think, oh, what a bunch of mummy's boys. What? I mean, I'm really glad that's in the Bible because when I meet them, I can laugh at that one. Um, so, <clears throat> so yeah, they, they're not exactly on the same page when it comes to understanding Jesus' kingdom. And verse seven, he says to him, he says to them, sorry, God the Father knows the times of these things. Um, so God will restore Israel back to power in his right time. They will not know when that will be. But this really isn't the point. This isn't the point of his kingdom and what Jesus has come now, okay? What he says, he carries on. He spells it out for them really, really clearly so they can't miss it. You guys, in verse eight, will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. And just to make sure that they're very, very clear, he reads a list out of where everywhere, everywhere is. So he starts in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, he would start in Jerusalem. That's the center of, of Israel. Um, so the disciples would have thought, yeah, that makes sense. We'll start in Jerusalem. He moves on to Judea. Judea, Judea kind of symbolizes the rest of Israel. Okay, we'll, we'll move to the, you know, God's kingdom will come to the rest of Israel. That kind of makes sense. They can deal with that. But then he, he drops a massive bomb and says, it's also to go to Samaria. Whoa, Samaria, I hear you all saying. Now, a bit of context here. Uh, the Samaritans were really, really despised by the Jews. Why were they despised? Because they were kind of seen as half-breeds, that they, they would call them. Um, and that meaning that they were, they were half-Jewish and half-pagan. And... Uh, the Jews would see this worse than being someone who was a pagan, who wasn't Jewish. So they were saying kind of mixing with people kind of makes you worse than someone who wasn't a Jew. Uh, so hence when Jesus told that story of the Good Samaritan, it was really, really shocking to his disciples and to the Jews because they, they wouldn't kind of want help from a Samaritan or, or think a Samaritan would. So this is kind of really, really breaking their idea of what Jesus' kingdom is about and who it's for. Okay, and then the last word he says, again, just to make the point, is that it's not just for uh, Jerusalem, it's not for Samaria, um, not for, for Israel, Judea, but it's also for everyone. I want you to go everywhere and proclaim the good news about me. So it's not just for our enemies, like the, the Samaritans, the Jews would have thought they were the enemies, or people who didn't deserve it, they might not have thought the Samaritans deserved it. Um, and he tells them to go everywhere. So this message really is for everyone. And I think one of the things I love about Jesus is that you really can't put this guy into a box. He always surprises us. And he seems to do things 
in ways that we don't think maybe he should, in ways that would really uh, surprise us. Maybe we would think aren't the best option to take. Let's think a bit about his life. He was born in a poo-ridden barn. The, the creator of the universe, the person to save us, was born in a poo-ridden barn. I don't think you would have scripted that if you were going to write about this guy before you had heard what happened in his life. He became a builder or a carpenter, using his hands, working for his old man. He didn't become a, a, a CEO or a top lawyer. He kind of came as a, as a normal bloke. He chose 12 funny, mixed, mixed up, rowdy bunch of disciples. These lot had not made the cut. Um, they, they had already started their dad's um, career. Uh, so in Jewish um, times, your aim as a young person was to become either a rabbi or become a disciple of the rabbi. And they would have different kind of stages at school. And as school went on, if you were good enough, you would stay right to the end and then kind of learn under a rabbi so then you become a rabbi yourself. These guys had not made that cut. And so they had gone into their father's trade and you have fishermen, tax collectors, you've got the uh, political activists there. So a real rowdy bunch... And I imagine managing these guys would have been a real nightmare and taken a lot of skill and a lot of effort. How much easier would it have been to take the, the, the A-grade students? But not Jesus. Okay, he also came at a, a, a weird time in some sense. I, I always think, why wouldn't he come in today's era, you know, when there's globalization, where um, we can see what's happening in one corner of the, of the world and be the complete opposite corner of the world. You know, imagine if Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount now, how viral that would be on YouTube. But he didn't come today when that could happen. He came when that news would have just stayed, you know, in, in the local villages where he was speaking. And, you know, it would have got passed around, but nothing like the impact that he could have had today. I just find that so interesting. So interesting. And the way he brings his kingdom in, he brings his kingdom in um, by a sacrificial, uh, by sacrificial love, by dying on a cross. No great um, strategic plan, no great advertising campaign. You know, um, he he dies for us, abandoned by his disciples, badly beaten, bruised, naked, on a on a piece of wood. You can't put Jesus in a box. You can't put him in a box. I wonder what the disciples felt like when Jesus left them, when he went up in that cloud. And he's basically saying to them, you're the next plan, mate. You guys are the next strategy in, in, in God's big plan. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You guys are going to be my hands and feet for me to tell the world the good news of who I am and what I've done. You're going to go from Jerusalem 
to the ends of the earth. You're going to go from Northfields to Auckland. You're going to go to your schools, to your college, to your work, to your family, to your friends. Jesus is saying, you guys are my great plan for the world. That's you. Emily, you're, great, you're God's great plan. Laura, God's great plan. Phil, God's great plan. Sarah, God's great plan. Will, God's great plan. John, God's great plan. And so on. You guys and me are God's great plan. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're God's great plan. So, no one said it to me because someone said it to me. Harry, you said it to me. Thank you, Harry. I feel affirmed. St. Augustine made a really good comment about this. And he said, without God, man cannot. Without man, God will not. For some reason, God has chosen us to do his work and help bring in his kingdom. He could have done it without us very easily. This is the guy who spoke the world into being and the universe into being. But for some reason that we probably can't understand, he chose to use me and you. And I take encouragement from the disciples because throughout the Gospels, it shows them messing up big time. So we all know the classic Peter denies Jesus three times after he boldly said, I'll never deny you. You have doubting Thomas who sees the risen Jesus still doesn't believe. Um, again, you have the, the, the mummy boy stories of getting their mum to ask Jesus on the sly if, he can, if they can be number one and number two. Throughout the Gospels, you see those guys messing up. And they are a bit of a, a, a mixed match bunch of, of guys. And I kind of think, if God can use these guys, if God can use the guys who didn't make the grade, the, who weren't the A-grade students, he can definitely use me, and he can definitely use you. Now I know, hearing that, some of you may be thinking, well that's great, Mark. I'm glad you feel good about yourself, or glad you feel you can be used. But I know I really struggle as a Christian. I find it really hard to read my Bible. I find it really hard to pray. Being God's great big plan sounds great, but I find it a bit hard to believe. Well, hold your horses there, cowboy or cowgirl, because God has got, he is a strategist, and he, had the, he does have a really good plan to help you. And that's because he promised his disciples and us a gift. A gift which is going to help us and empower us to, to be that plan and to bring that change. And that is the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. So verse 8, he says, Jesus promises them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now we know what happened on the day of Pentecost we read it uh, a chapter later in the book of Acts. And let's just quickly turn there, if you will, with me to Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. I'm just going to read it out. On the day 
of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. What an amazing day. What an amazing day that must have been. But notice right at the beginning, in the first verse, it says that all of the believers were gathered together. All the believers who believed in Jesus were all together in one place. This wasn't just the famous 12. This wasn't just the 72. This was all the believers gathered together and they all received the Spirit of God. And this is significant because what Luke is saying is that it is for all believers. It's not for a specific group. It really is for everyone. It's for us, for you and me. And really, when you look at the, the lives of the disciples and the acts of them, it's only really when they get the Holy Spirit that they turn from a disorganized, fearful, um, kind of rowdy bunch They then become an organized, confident, brave bunch because they've been empowered by the Spirit. They've had a change. The key is in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And you know, the the gift of the Holy Spirit is just the most amazing gift for us as a family, as as a, a bunch of believers together. The Holy Spirit is the one that enables us to change. He is the one who continues to reshape us to become more and more and more like Jesus. And I really fully believe that just like the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is moving today. So, what does the Holy Spirit do? What does He do in people? What does He do in the church? What does it do in individual lives? I just want to quickly draw out three points about the Holy Spirit and what he does. So repeat after me. The Holy Spirit is God's transforming power. The Holy Spirit... Well said. So the Holy Spirit, he changes us. He changes us. He changes us. You don't have to keep repeating after me. You can if you want, though. It kind of helps because it means that you're listening. Uh, There's not one of us who is the same since the first day we encountered the person of Jesus and the person of his spirit. And he's the same in the Old Testament. We read in um, when the, the prophet Samuel spoke to Saul, And listen to what he said. He said, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be changed into a different person. The Holy Spirit testifies that we are God's children, says Paul in in Romans. The Holy Spirit is the one that moves and galvanizes us. He guides us to the truth we find in scripture He convinces us of our faith. 
that we need to repent and that we can stand against anything. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit enriches our lives. And it does this by developing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest of them. That's what he does. When we are filled by him, we are changed. We continue to change. He transforms us. Okay, number two, repeat after me. The Holy Spirit empowers me. Well done, well done, Ed. In other words, or in the words of Jesus, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So it's it's Jesus who enables to believe all this Holy Spirit stuff. He gives us the power to hold on to what we believe. He gives us the power to live from each morning to each night, to stand our ground, to keep our heads up high when all things are losing their way around us. He gives us the power to swim against the stream, to hold our nerve as believers. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to carry out the mandate of Jesus. When he told us to pray for the sick, to care for the poor, to feed the hungry, to go to the prisons, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set and liberate those that are oppressed and cast out their demons. I don't know about you, but I know I need his power because I can't do any of that stuff without him. Number three, the Holy Spirit fills me. me. Amen. Amen. Now we read earlier, didn't we, that when all the believers were gathered, the Holy Spirit filled all of the believers that were there. And I really believe again this evening, he wants to fill us up again and send us out just as he did those years ago. And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, oh my phone's ringing, how unprofessional. This better be Jesus calling, oh it is. No it's not. Sorry. Okay, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Actually, in that book, it's a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Why not? You should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, there's three words. Three words for being filled in the spirit, in the Greek. I'm not going to pretend I know how to read Greek or really understand Greek, but I do understand the definitions. So the first one describes a person, a state of person who is permanently characterized by being full of the Holy Spirit. So for instance, we are told that Stephen or Barnabas in the book of Acts were full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure you may know men or women in your life who you've just felt like, Man, that person is so full of the Holy Spirit. Two, another is when it's used in the imperfect tense to be filled by the Spirit, which simply means we need to keep on being filled in order to be holy, in order to be fruitful, in order to be effective. 
So just to, to clarify this, um, there was an amazing preacher called D.L. Moody, and he was an evangelist in the late 19th century in America. Amazing man, and one time an angry, hostile woman went up to him and said, Mr. Moody, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? To which he graciously replied, Madam, I am, but I leak. And so the point being, he needs to be continually filled with the Spirit because we, we have bad weeks. We have weeks where we mess up, we do things wrong, and we need more. We need more of his presence. We need to be empowered by him more and more. And the third one, the third word for being filled explains the times when a person is inspired, overcome, empowered maybe, anointed for a specific reason, uh, a, a particular commission or job that God wants us to fulfill. So maybe to go out and pray for someone you see tomorrow morning in the office or at school. It could be right now you, someone's uh, face is entering your mind thinking, I must pray for that person. I must speak to that person. I must encourage that person. We must go and take a risk for Jesus. You see, Peter was filled on the day of Pentecost. And we know he preached to hundreds of thousands and and 3,000 believed. Later in Acts 4, we are told that Peter is filled again with the Spirit. And he gave a defense to the authorities of what had been going on in the church in Jerusalem. Later on again in Acts, he is filled again by the Holy Spirit at a particular amazing prayer meeting. More, Lord, we want more. We want more. We want more of you. We need more of you. It's always right, even tonight, as God's children, to ask our loving Father for more of his presence, for more of his Holy Spirit. Why is that? Sometimes it's because experience persuades us. And this is the prayer that he never resents and he never ever fails to answer. For those of you who have children in this room, you know how much you love to give good gifts to them. It's a joy. I just had Matthew's uh, birthday not so long ago and it was great fun going picking him a, a gift. I went to the, the second-hand kind of toy store in Northfields Avenue and bought, them, bought him this amazing Tonka truck. I don't know if anyone's seen this Tonka truck, has anyone played with them, but they're really, really big, kind of manly steel toys, kind of indestructible, and each one has a different type of mechanism and maneuver, and, and we got this one that had a crane, and they're rather expensive, so um, I just picked whatever one they had, and it was just this, this crane. Um, Anyway, it's amazing, but I had great, great, great delight in picking that toy for Matthew. I kind of wanted to keep going in the shop and buy loads of stuff, kind of for me because it was fun in there, but mainly for him because I love him. But how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen? Okay, so why don't we stand and we're going to wait 
for the Holy Spirit.